network capital laura marie we're excited to have you on our podcast you've had a really interesting career could you briefly tell us about who you are and what do you do today hi Utkaj. yeah absolute pleasure to be here with you today and thanks for having me on network capital really a impressive community that you've uh, you've built up and in, in that space so excited to be sharing some of my story with you today so yeah happy to do so quick uh, context on uh, who I am and uh, what I do today. I uh, think of myself as a as a a bit of a, a unusual um, chameleon and bridge builder. Really, if you look at my background, you'll see that there's been a, a bit of a stint in various different places. I started out in government, actually, at the European Commission's Economic and Financial Affairs Directorate then moved on to academia and management consulting. From there, I had a stint in banking and venture capital, and I'm now at the World Economic Forum, where I helped build up its first digital platform to connect the most innovative entrepreneurs, really, from all around the world, no matter where they're from, no matter who they are, really a diverse community of best-in-class entrepreneurs with the resources they need to help scale them at the global level. So think of it as putting the community of the World Economic Forum to get used to help empower those innovators at the grassroots level, to help them achieve a much, much greater set of local communities with the solutions they have. So really, if you look at that from bird's eye perspective, you think, well, those are an awful lot of different stints in different places. And, you know, how, how did that come about? And I think that's maybe it goes back to a very fundamental belief that that I have, and I always like to you know share in, in discussions with with others is that we have this belief somehow, right? That specializing really early on and and narrowly so is basically what we're taught in school from day one. This is the way to go, right? If you the best way to find meaningful work and have a successful career is to just is just do that, you know, specialize early on, find your passion, go out and do that, and then you'll be fine. Well, you see, I'm I'm not quite convinced. I must say, yes, I think I, I think you know, um, if you look at sort of what you know how my path has shaped up, fundamental assumption behind that is that I am a firm believer of sampling, constant experimentation. So I actually I would almost go as far as saying that sampling and constant experimentation is just as reliable as specialization. Now, why is that? Well, if you think about how the world works, right, for a moment, then you'll see that there's an awful lot of complex systems that one needs to understand, disentangle, make sense of. I've always been of the belief that if we really want to connect the dots in a meaningful way and find creative solutions to problems that we might not even be aware of yet, but that still need to be defined, probably a good way of doing so is is to be able to think laterally across mental models from very very, various disciplines, whether that's economics, psychology, philosophy, physics. If you can borrow the best ideas across rather than just within one discipline, I think that's when you come up with the the really, really cool ideas to move, move the needle and come up with solutions that maybe otherwise you would have never thought of. So I think if you look at my path and how that's shaped up and, and why taking those those different stints in various different places across the public and the private sector, it's really that fundamental belief. And 
And Utkash, I think what you know, we've talked about this before, really, is you know, what that exposes, interestingly, is also the paradox of choice, right? If you think about right. you know, and how that works in finding meaningful work. Because somehow, you know, we believe in, well, we need to keep as many different choices as possible to find the best path. But actually, if you think about it, it's about narrowing it down right, to the options that you really enjoy, you're really good at, or maybe not just even you're really good at, but that you thrive in. And if you think about how that works best, and we again go back to the advice we often get when we're kids or students, well, just find your passion. Well, that doesn't just happen, right? The way you find what you're really passionate about is by the method of exclusion. You try things, you realize, well, this is something I really don't like and I really strongly dislike, actually. I'm, not, I'm useless at it. The best way to do so is really not by specializing, but by branching out somewhat. So I would like to think of it as, as a scientific explorer. And I always say this to, to others who are just about to you know, start a new career path or just about to enter you know, university or just about to find their first jobs. Think of it as a scientific explorer. And, and what I mean by that is really adopting the method of a scientist somewhat. So constantly running a series of experiments, right? testing your assumptions, building those feedback loops. So I think that's really the, the, the kind of what that you want to figure out. Right? But just as important, and this is where the explorer part of this comes in, is cultivating a sense of curiosity, right? a desire to always learn more, being having a willingness to also look at confidence and really think of it as experiencing it with a genuinely open mind of where you want to go with it. I think that's really it, right? Because by running these different experiments across, you're also in the process of it. I think you'll start changing your attitude towards learning. And that's really, really key in my view. That, you know, and how have you done that in your life? Could you give us a practical example or a set of examples? Of course, uh, happy to. So if you think about how where I started out, you know, in, in the, my very first job in policy in the European Commission, one thing I, you know, that really taught me, uh, really, I think a key lesson I took out was is about the power of incentives. To give you an example here, is, you know, I I worked in. Um, in the unit for accession and pre-accession economies. So everything that had the Western Balkans written all over it. So I specifically worked on Bosnia at the, at the time. So I spent a lot of time in Sarajevo. Super interesting time, you know, being able to be on the ground, talk to organizations, talk to um, everyday citizens, talk to NGOs, and really find out what drives them, what's important to them. Now, fundamental disconnect that I realized was between the sorts of incentives that policy policymakers at EU level are setting and those that are accepted on the ground by the local people. So in other right. words, incentives only work if there's a local ownership of those incentives, right? You can, I think Charlie Munger, you know, brilliant right hand of Warren Buffett has put it so well. If you, if you are, if you want, if you want a person to believe in non-X, but it requires, it requires them to believe in X to survive, it simply won't work. Right. So I think this has been for me, it's been a key lesson that I've took away, I took away um, and that become has become a really powerful insight as I move to other areas in that field. So to give you an example, one thing you realize in, uh, in policymaking is that in many ways you're driving and shaping an agenda 
But what I really wanted to do was to create and build myself. Now, this, this is how I ended up. I ended up in academia because I was really keen to open up a research field others could use as a foundation to fill out their own work. And again, I ended up looking at incentives. It's something that I think has been is 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 so of such fundamental importance and constantly underrated in terms of really understanding decision making that I was I was keen to dive in a bit deeper. So I ended up at the at the Oxford Smith School looking at sustainable finance and behavioral finance, looking at at one of the areas that I was uh, really keen to better understand, you know, having started out looking at communist transition economies in the Balkans, that being of a very natural interest to me because um, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm of Belarusian and East German descent myself, having grown up in the German Democratic Republic before the war came down, that was a natural interest for me. And if you think about it in a much larger sense, there's probably one economy that is, that is, that is the ultimate case to study in that respect, and that is China. So this is what I focused on in, in my work. And even there, the power of incentives, as you can imagine, for an economy that is juggling and bridging multiple different models of how to organize society. It's been absolutely fascinating to do. So I looked at to what extent are incentives very much at the personal level, compensation structures, incentives at um, the personal level, driving behavior amongst institutional investors in China. And again, hugely valuable lessons to be applied there from the policy space. And having experienced that in practice, you can start testing those assumptions in different testing grounds. So this is really, I would, I would say, and I would say this as an, a piece of encouragement. If you haven't found what you are, you know, truly passionate about yet, keep experimenting, keep testing those assumptions, and seeing what works and what doesn't. And for me, it's been, it's been really that key insight: applying, um, applying insights that you've gained in one field, and seeing how they play out in others. So when I say, you know, had, what is, what has been my 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 driver all along is is really that the fact that I'm a I'm a huge believer in, in lifelong learning and, and applying lessons across to drive fresh thinking. And I think this is something you can only really do if you if you nudge yourself a bit, if you push yourself out of your comfort zone. And by so the, how do you push yourself out? Mm, that's a very good question. I think it's by taking that taking a calculated risk let's put it that way right jumping into jumping into a completely new sphere and being a bit of a revolving door um, professional going in and out of the public sector right that requires taking a bit of a, a leap into the cold water I really believe they you know as uh, I think uh, Eleanor Roosevelt has put it very eloquently you know do one thing a day that scares you by that I mean don't don't ignore your you know your own very valuable intuition of what what to do and what not to do. But to give you that bit of a nudge, if you know that it's the right path, to just give it a go and try it out. But having a method behind it, and this is where we, we come back to that that approach or that method of experimentation. You don't have to you don't have to take the jump immediately in an all or or nothing approach, right? But you can you can cultivate multiple careers at the same time. I think that's 
that's been a, an approach that certainly has fared very well for me to give you to give you an example when I was at the Smith School um, in, in Oxford during my research years um, I also worked in management consulting at macro advisory partners right really phenomenal experience I mean imagine you're in your early 20s and you uh, you work along the likes of uh, Kofi Annan, Sergio Soyuz, the, the chief of the former chief of the MI6, and William Burns of the Carnegie Endowment. I mean, really phenomenal opportunity being able to learn amongst amongst and alongside those those sorts of giants in their own fields. Um, yeah. At the same time, I think you know you you got to. This was an opportunity precisely because it gave me a bit of a reality check for what I was doing in my own research as an academic at the time. So you, if you can find and carve out opportunities where you get to test whether, whether your assumptions about what you really are not just passionate about, passionate about, but where you can play towards your strengths, that's an approach where you know, I think you, you get to push yourself without pushing yourself over the line. So you, you, you give yourself a, 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 bit of a, a bit of a parachute mechanism throughout. Very, very interesting, I must say. So um, talk to me about uh, what does a day in your life, building what you're building right now, look like? Mm -hmm. And uh, how does it connect with some of the career principles that you've talked about so far? Mm, happy to, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, and again, it goes back to the power of an, of incentives, you know, applying this to where I am now at, uh, at Uplink, the World Economics Forum, the World Economic Forum's platform for connecting entrepreneurs and, you know, leaders across business, government, civil society from the World Economic Forum's existing network is, is really about understanding incentives again. Right? It's because ultimately, if you build out, and, and this is an interesting one, if you build out a digital platform, where you want to you want to connect those at the grassroots level with those who hold the resources to scale the solutions supplied from the grassroots level at the global level, you really got to understand incentives and how you connect those meaningfully. So again, if you talk to entrepreneurs that we uh, we bring on board, you know, for for the various different communities we have on Uplink, again, we are we are firm believers that. Um, in order to connect many, many networks of resources to the right problems to be solved, meaningful problems to be solved across the UN Sustainable Development Goals, whether that is climate change, whether that is education, um, whether that is removing plastics from the ocean, you name it. It's about understanding what entrepreneurs really need. What are the actual problems that they're facing on the ground? So I think, again, right, hugely valuable lessons to be applied there from policy, from academia, from my time and the venture capital space and in, in, in banking, so how that actually works on the ground. This is what we're doing. This is what we, what we very much you know, do on a daily basis to figure out how can we design the platform in a way that it actually becomes useful to those who will be using it. You can imagine a daily, a, a day, uh, a typical day. Well, if there is such a thing, a typical day in the in the uplink team is really is really a mix of those questions. Understanding how we can best serve those who will be benefiting 
from the platform. So that's the entrepreneurs on the one hand, but also the partner organizations um, and the businesses, government leaders, civil society leaders that will be working with us to help uplift those solutions. What is it that they really care about? How can we integrate this in a way that the platform features that you see um, online actually reflect those needs? So if you think about it from a team's perspective, right? We have, and our teams are, team is working tirelessly to, to make that come alive through our um, various different online communities. Think about it as really, you know, we're using the UN SDGs as a reference guide, as a reference framework for um, the key problems we believe that need to be addressed in the world. And we started out with, uh, with the Oceans platform, um, of our, you know, SDG 14, so life underwater, as a first test case, as a first minimum viable product. And I think what was really fascinating to see is, is that, again, it is not just about the funding. Right? It's not just about you know, raising capital, which is a, a problem that every startup, every entrepreneur faces, whether you're an impact startup or whether you're a tech startup, doesn't matter. That's a problem that all, all entrepreneurs are facing. But arguably what's even more valuable, and again, coming back to the power of incentives and, and understanding needs on the ground, is, is going a step beyond that and actually having the ability to test out your product or your service through an actual pilot project. And this is when we realized, hey, hang on a second. This is where we, um, with Uplink and with the World Economic Forum, can help out and can have a really important role to play by connecting some of the leading organizations in the public and the private sector with entrepreneurs who hold the solutions to address some of the biggest problems we're facing, and they're already doing so at the local level, but helping them, helping uplift them at the regional level, even at the global level. This is something where Uplink can play a very important role as, a, as an equalizer in that space. So this is to give you, give you a bit of an idea of this. Yeah, this is very helpful. I mean, the design principle of Absolutely. what you're trying to do. It is very much about, you know, applying the right sort of, um, design as you rightly say so, say so and i think understanding again what drives what drives people on the ground what are the actual needs what are the actual problems we need to solve for i think it's 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 a, you know it's it, it's it's such an important question that it can't be overstated really truly understanding what is the what is the key problem we're looking to address it's awesome um once you've identified and uh, drawn up a design and a mission statement how how is the team assembled and what's your specific role in you know shaping um the charter and uh, because you i imagine you have to work across timelines so mm. how do you plan your day or how do you plan your month uh, what are some things that work and what are some things that don't yeah that's an excellent question i think you know especially in a project that's such a mammoth project like we we need to we need to not only work you know within different timelines of what is what does my my day or my week or my month look like but much beyond that so think of it as working in different time horizons to give you one example you know is is we started out and this is the beauty again of having the brilliant opportunity of living experimentation in my day-to-day -day work today so very much the 
as mentioned, you know, the mantra that that uh, that I I live by is to be able to say, well, you know, in in order to iterate quickly uh, and, and draw on some of those learnings from our early test cases, we also want to be able to plan for this year, for example, in a way where we get to run a series of experiments, extract extract those learnings and feed them into other online communities around the SDGs that we are looking to roll out in 2021. So to give you an example, let's go back to the example of sustainable development goal 14, oceans and life underwater. Said, okay, great, let's test case that by Uplink being a crowdsourcing platform to filter and source and search and surface the best entrepreneurs addressing problems that we are facing in the oceans, whether that's removing plastics from the oceans, whether that's addressing illegal fishing, you name it. Let's do so in a centralized manner. So what we did is we we designed on the platform, we designed a call for action to help source those entrepreneurs across the board through the Uplink and the World Economic Forum networks. And then and then see how we would fare in that respect to source the right profiles that we can then connect um, to the WEF's partnership base. Now, this has been an interesting learning experience because what we realized as well is that by by centralizing that effort, we're of course also limiting our reach somewhat. And so this is sort of it's a very important um, learning early on where we said in the next phase, what we would like to trial and test is how would we fare if we were to decentralize some of that? So in other words, rather than sourcing thousands of startup profiles ourselves, we would instead put the emphasis on recruiting the right impact partners who have vast networks of startups and impact investors themselves to help us do that together, you know, team up on it. So in other words, you move away from an operating model where everything is centralized through one platform, Uplink, where you instead become a decentralized network of platforms working together. So this is what we what we did in our um, in our in our second experiment, as you might call it, with uh, the COVID pandemic somehow you know uh, being being a being a bit of a being a bit of a complete U-turn to our roadmap, but one that is really, really, really important because the mission statement here that we, you know, we are relentlessly pursuing is of course to say, well, you know, if we truly want to help address the key problem we're facing today, which is that that resources are not necessarily getting to the places where they can make the biggest difference to address problems we're facing in the world, again, across climate change, across um, addressing problems that we're, we're seeing around education, around livelihoods, then we got to make sure that we have the reach that's needed to actually achieve that. So what's been really interesting to see in that second experiment is that by working with partners, you obviously are only multiplying the search effort of finding innovative entrepreneurs around the world. But above all, finding entrepreneurs were usually a venture capitalist, a government program, a business leader might not even be looking. Right? We were able to surface entrepreneurs. What are some reasons for that? that yeah. um, is it lack of network? Is it 
risk appetite? Why? It's a very good what are question. Some common reasons that you've seen? I think I think that's an excellent question. I think I think one of the I think there's a multiple there's multiple factors coming into play. Right? One is that one is that uh, that I think we're we're not. If you pick the example of impact investors, right? You'll see that a lot of them are are obviously quite focused on a particular region or a particular market themselves. That is both a, I think that is both due to the fact that many of them are, you know, don't have the scale of multi-billion dollar um, capital allocation capacities, but also be that their expertise is very much focused on a particular market. So it's a loose network rather than one that is integrated. We see a lot of fragmentation in that space. So what that leads to, the result is that many of them are not looking in areas where some of the most innovative on-the-ground solutions might be emerging, but funding is simply not available. So you see a disconnect between capital allocation and innovative ideas on the ground emerging. So that's one. I think from a, from a, from a business perspective, if you look at some of the, the largest corporates that we're working with, Again, programs of filtering and, and working, finding right, the, right, the right entrepreneurs on the, brown, on the ground is actually a really hard thing to do. And it requires working with many, many different local actors on the ground who understand the problems that are being faced on a daily basis. Again, this requires a decentralized approach rather than a centralized approach, which is not, which is not, an area, which is not a way of operating that many, many organizations have today, if you think of it. So I think there are multiple multiple factors coming together at once here. But really, the key thing is to say that if we if we truly want to address some of that fragmentation, right, we've got to turn that on its head and say we're moving away from you know, having multiple organizations basically doing their own work in silos and building, if you want to borrow that word, an, an, an operating system where you get to where you get to have a reach and you get to look in areas where we're currently not even scratching the surface. So it's about integrating local with, with the global level in a way that we currently haven't done, and certainly not across public and private sector efforts. So this is really the ambition we have here is to say, we want to bring together the power of public and private sector actors, but expand that reach beyond their own spheres of operating to reaching areas of the globe where we currently we currently don't have them on the radar. We don't, you're not even looking there. So for instance, to give you an example, really exciting to see that we have, you know, we had contributions from entrepreneurs from Myanmar um, that we were able to uncover and surface through our uplink challenge, which is again something that you know might not even it might not even be on the radar of a, of, a, of a venture capital impact investing fund in Europe. And it's not something where they would either have the reach, the resources, um, or the possibility to go and look for that. So this is really this is really what 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 we want to rectify is to say how can we equalize the playing field of those who have fantastic ideas yeah. but don't have the access needed to scale their solutions. Got it. And uh, if when you look at uh, some of your past career moves from uh, you know, your time at Oxford to mm. um, the work that you've done in different continents, how are you 
bringing different strands of knowledge into building this product. And uh, I'm sure there are many surprises on the way with you know, <laughs> uncharted territories. How are you bridging that skill or knowledge gap on the go? Hmm. That's, a, that's a super, super point to make because there's many unknown unknowns. Uh, or I think areas where, you know, you simply, you simply don't even know what the problem is that you're facing yet. You still need to find and define that problem. And so, again, if we go back to, I think the, the key question to remember when it comes to reconciling knowledge and figuring out not just how to, how to answer a question, but to even how to pose the right question is, again, to, to me, in my view, is a question of experimenting, having the right design setup, the right how to rather than the right what. So honestly, I think the, the key thing for me has been that, that is, I've certainly would credit a lot of um, new idea generation or finding new pathways I haven't thought about before is to, have a, is to have a compelling design methodology. So the how to, really. And it's, it's about, in my view, setting up, setting up again, you know, whether that's in life personally or whether that's in in your work is setting up a series of, of experiments where you get to test those assumptions and very much you know now that you reference my, my time at Oxford the Smith School that is something I'm incredibly grateful for um, to have had the time to explore in depth how do you approach the how-to how do you how do you run a compelling um set up to design experiments to tease out those questions because ultimately i think this is this is got this is an important insight is is running experiments is with the is with the objective in mind not necessarily to find the answers uh, to confirm your hypotheses but to open up new set of questions that will lead you down the right path and this is very much the 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 model that I've been applying across, whether that was whether that was in government, whether that was in academia, whether that was at macro advisory partners in my consulting days, whether that was in venture capital when it comes to diligencing, sourcing, finding the right entrepreneurs, and making investment decisions, it is very much a question of finding the right questions to ask through running your experiments rather than um, I would say thinking of it as a, how much you know. Right? It's, it's how can you continuously refine the questions you ask to get further, to get closer to what you might in scientific um, terms call your, your state of truth. Uh, and so this is, this is very much applicable also to how we are building and refining the products that we're building with Uplink, the platform itself, right? It's a continuous iteration of, of making it more relevant, more um, convenient, more in tune with the needs that we have across the many, many different user segments that we're serving you think of, right? We have, we have the entrepreneurs on the one hand, we have impact investors on the other, we have large corporate organizations, we have 
international organizations that we're working with. We have civil society, you have universities, we have individual um, we have individual youth communities such as our Global Shapers. All of them have very, very different needs and expectations around how, um, how the platform can help them connect and help them, help them achieve their own missions, their own objectives in advancing key problems that they're addressing in the sustainability space. So now that requires, again, compartmentalizing and setting up a series of compelling experiments to get closer to those answers. And so this is where I say having a solid roadmap, right, where you think of each of your time horizons as a, as a set of independent but interconnected experiments, that's really how you, you get closer to those, those sorts of intersection points we were talking about earlier, right? moving in and out of different, uh, different areas uh, across the private right. sector across the public sector. When you look at your life, um, how much of it is luck? How much of it is hard work and <laughs> mentorship? Mm. You know, Utkash, I would say it's a combination of all of those three. Tell I mean, us all about it. <laughs> I would say, I would say, I would I would say that a disproportionately large amount is again we we would like to we always like to assume that we are under control of most things that we we venture into and dedicate our time and energy to. We see again I'm not entirely convinced that is true because the ultimate question starts with when and how were you given the opportunity to work hard on something that you're passionate about? And that is a question that comes before you get to dedicate yourself to something and excel at it. So in my view, to give you an example from, from my, uh, my own life, I was very fortunate, and this is the, 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 the uh, dimension of luck, I guess, that you, you referenced here, is I was very fortunate. I come from, uh, uh, as I said, you know, I, I grew up in uh, in East Germany of a family of a German German dad and a Belarusian mother. Very different, uh, um, very different way of uh, of of growing up. Very heavily influenced by what used to be the former USSR. Um, and and so you know, even the imagination, the 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 simple thought of being able to venture out and being able to learn and experience an environment such as such as Oxford was sheer unthinkable it was something that I you know I never even imagined in my wildest dreams would be possible and so it was it was certainly a combination of you know, curiosity and, and working hard but also of having had the opportunity that somebody saw something in me and gave me the opportunity to do so. And again, that it, it could have been that on the day of my interviews, that would have, uh, you know, that would have, could have gone uh, in, a, in a very different manner. So I was fortunate enough, and I would really credit this to my, my, uh, my mentor at, you know, university, my supervisor, who's, who's been an, you know, an incredible, incredibly good at um, seeing beyond again the what the what you know today but assessing your potential of what you could be of the right support 
So this is where the mentorship component component comes in. Now, having mentors is so incredibly important because it allows you to go beyond where you are today. It allows you to 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 imagine and I think very specifically visualize a version of yourself of where you want to be or what you want to become. And having that encouragement early on is 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 nothing short of of critical. So I would say in in that sequence, you now having having an opportunity to grasp, having an opportunity to do that enables you and opens up the space to then work hard. That goes obviously hand in hand with then seizing that opportunity um, and, and making the most of it and throwing yourself in there um, and dedicating yourself to something. I think that is equally important as one or the other, one, one aspect doesn't work without the other. And I think the underlying foundation um, underneath it all to really thrive and 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 have an evolution of your own thought processes throughout can only be done in collaboration with others so finding the right people to support you and when I say mentor by the way the example I gave for my own um, my own PhD supervisor when I started out in academia that was that was incredibly important but it but those are not only to be found in, in areas of your life where where you know people have substantially a substantially broader experience and more more numbers of years of experience under their belts, it could equally be a friend with a different perspective, somebody in your own peer group who just opens up a completely new perspective of how to look at things. Because and mind you, this is I think something that is that is as important to understand. Um, as is, you know, how do you, what is your, your best route to, to really um, finding what you love doing is also how you approach what you love doing. So I think for me, a, a really key, key moment has been, to give you another example of mentorship that sits underneath, is throughout my, my time in, in China, when I uh, helped build the uh, Asia advisory practice for macro advisory partners, the consulting firm that I was with at the time, and that was based in Beijing. The encounter with uh, one of my my uh, closest friends and peers at the time, a, a Chinese lady, who really opened up the space to me to how to think, how to make sense of how people tick, what they value, and to embrace that you can, you 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 really can connect the dots by having a radically open mind towards those different perspectives. That has been, that is what is, what is also nurtured. I think what ultimately came my, became my principle, my guiding principle, which is experimentation, relentless experimentation. So having people who nudge you into that direction um, is a combination of, uh, you know, of, of luck, uh, of meeting the right people at the right time but also in combination with hard work. Because if you think about those three dimensions and how they interplay, right? if, if, you, if you continuously work towards what you, are, what, you're, what you like, what you're good at, or what you're at the very least curious about, in combination with having, having a good portion of luck, yeah? I think that, that grows and gets larger by building a wider set of opportunities. And by by enlarging your set of opportunities, you also enlarge in the likelihood of meeting the right people who become your mentors through life and through work. 
So ultimately, I think yeah. it's a combination of, of all those three things. But may I may I just emphasize that I think one or the other. It's it's you know I, th- I think sh- sh- I think solely attributing it to to hard work is probably not the correct way of looking at it. Got it. Uh, could you explain what is the best and worst career advice that you've got in your life? <laughs> That's also a good one. I'm absolutely happy to share. I think I think probably the worst career advice I I got is um is is to follow your passion. And the reason why I say that is because I remember being very confused about uh, that piece of advice when I first got it because I thought to, my, to myself, well, you know, I'm I'm in my teens. I have absolutely no idea what my passion is. I know that I like various different things. I'm curious about many different things, but I don't have the passion. So the reason why I say that that's probably not very useful career advice is because it 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 assumes somewhat that you should already know what your passion is. And I think that goes hand in hand probably the best career advice I've uh, I've been given which is the best way to f- figure out what is meaningful to you in work and in life as well is to be an entrepreneur and what I mean by that is you got to be able to seek out opportunities to see them identify them but also to make use of them and what that means specifically is exactly you'll see where this is going is, is to come back to my to, to my 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 key principle that has guided me throughout is to set yourself set up set yourself up with a series of experiments where you get to test your assumptions in a controlled setting. So that is I, I would credit a large part of being able to connect the dots across the different fields I've worked in with, with that approach is to see it is to see your your career as a process of lifelong learning. Got it. Um, what do you read and what are some productivity hacks that you employ in your daily life? <laughs> some productivity hacks. Well, I, I got I to be honest here. For me, it's all about I'm an early riser. So my productivity is almost entirely determined by how I start my day. And and I think you know on that front that is um, for me although I'm a I'm 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 a huge supporter of uh, of uh, you know leaving room for surprise and serendipity um, my mornings are usually follow the same routine um, so I wake up at uh, 6:30 the first thing I do is something that my mother my grandmother and my great great grandmother have done which is I start with a with a, a glass of water and a bit of apple cider in it. It gives me a bit of an energy boost. I wake up um, and uh, in, followed by, and this is to the horror of most friends whenever I share this, is uh, with, uh, with a cold shower. Something you've got to get used to. Uh, I can tell you that much. But it's uh, it, once you have got into the habit, it's something that uh, you know, I feel fresh, I feel awake, I feel alert. And I spent the first... Uh, 20 or so minutes um, taking time for reflection. That can take um, 
different forms and shapes. You know, uh, it can uh, it can be in the form of uh, writing down ideas. I have a I have uh, a couple of different notebooks lying uh, lying around the uh, lying around my apartment. So whenever I have, a, I have a great idea, I can just scribble it down. But really taking that first, you know, the first half an hour to write down ideas, thoughts, um, um, objectives about not just about the day, but also about you know dreams and uh, and ideas and projects that I would like to tackle in the future. And again, that's a useful experiment I think to run for. For everyone to try because you you get to cross pollinate about what you can do today versus uh, you know what might seem completely out of reach visions and dreams to you know today but but you can you can start building bridges between those two so I take time for that I take time to reflect on you know, where I'd like to uh, you know, what I would like to do not just across career and work but uh, but also with um, you know, with areas of my life that um, that I'm still uh, that I'm that I believe are creative outlets. So to give you an example, I've been a I've been um, a passionate uh, painter from uh, very early youth days, and um, seriously, uh, for me, that's probably one of the the best ways to completely unwind, relax, and get into a state of flow. So what I've one of one morning uh, I had the idea like no, Lomari, what a what, you know, what you've always you've you've been painting and drawing for for so many years now. Um, why don't you team up with a friend and set yourself the goal of um, in ten years from now I want to have my own curated exhibition um, of uh, of different works that I've uh, um, that I've produced across the years. So those are things where I think you 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 give yourself creative outlets and uh, and and you know goals much longer term goals that you can continuously um look forward to and and i think that make you more productive also in other parts of your work so i think reflection in the morning those even if it, if you start out with 15 to 20 minutes is is really a powerful tool i think the second thing um that for me is absolutely non-negotiable is is uh is exercise so i'm i'm a i'm a really passionate runner I am a hobby triathlete as well. So for me, the morning is when I, when I get to go out into the fresh air, um, you know, take a, go for a run, do some, uh, you know, do have a quick circuit uh, workout, wh- whatever it is, whatever takes your fancy. But I think, you know, getting, getting the blood pump pumping and, and uh, getting, getting in, uh, in that, in that mindset of, of being awake and ready to tackle the day for me, whatever may come later on during the day, you know, if I've, if I've moved, if I've uh, if I've had time to exercise, it's something that gets that gets that energy out of your body and, and sets you up for productivity throughout the day. And I would say the final the final component of it for me for every you know every morning is and again this heavily spills over to you know productivity throughout the day in, in work and in other parts of your life is is uh, to take time for something that you really enjoy so for me that usually relates to learning something new so half an hour i take for reading a book or reading an article in an area that has typically nothing to do with my day-to-day work schedule but something that i find um fascinating and i would love to love to learn more about so for example 
that could be anything related to um, you know, personal stories and biographies. For example, um, one book I'm currently reading is Robert Massey's Catherine the Great. Fascinating woman, you know, fascinating historical context of, um, you know, of, of resilience above all, you know, of finding different ways and uh, different pathways of how to um, move ahead and find solutions in a in a place that uh, you know is 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 essentially not your own. So I think having time for that as well, you know, making time for for activities that you find genuine joy in and you get to rejuvenate for me that is taking time for quiet reading and for reflection and for learning about something entirely new and you know disconnected from my day-to-day why is that important and I think go back to you know your question of productivity hacks I think the the irony is that we sometimes you know there's this myth that we we hold that in order to be more productive you need to cram more into your schedule and you need to be razor sharp, have a razor sharp focus on the task at hand. Yes, but I would challenge that a little bit and say what I've found over the years is actually think of your day as not a, a circle of hours. We have a certain number of hours during the day, but think of it in terms of your energy levels and try to think about how Boosting your energy at a certain part in the day can affect your productivity. Day, can affect your productivity throughout. So taking that time in the morning where you not just frantically check your emails or you, you know, you you, you try to you know, clear your inbox or take the first call, you know, 15 minutes after you wake up, you're not setting yourself up for for that, if you like, slower release of energy levels. That that energy boost you need in the morning to tackle whatever may come your way so my my number one productivity hack is is a is a is a combination of those different elements and making them non-negotiable and, and how i start my day that's fascinating our final question is that if you 18 year old self were to look at you today would she be happy would she be sad would she be proud somewhere in between <laughs> yeah I think she'd be surprised. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? What, you, what, what, what are you currently doing? Where are you currently based? I think, you know, I think my 18-year-old self um, would have probably not believed that, uh, you know, if I would have told her that I was to, uh, I was to, uh, you know, work uh, across a multitude of different sectors. I've uh, lived in eight and uh, worked in eight uh, different countries and had the opportunity to. Um, you know, connect with mindsets, perspectives, and people that I would have never dreamt of. I think surprised um, would have been, uh, would probably be the right word to, to describe it. Um, because certainly I think my, my life, because of its different stints and different areas, has been a lot more, a lot more interesting and a lot more fascinating um, than I could have hoped for. Well, I'm sure you have lots and lots of adventures ahead and uh, I look forward to learning more about it in the times to come. Pleasure, Rukesh. Absolute pleasure speaking to you about those uh, very important questions to reflect and ponder.